0: Welcome back to No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined not by Courtney Nguyen. Courtney is not here. She is in China. She is an ocean away. And so... We were not able to bridge that gap to climb that great wall in time for this week's episode. Hopefully, she'll be coming to you guys next week with a special return guest to the show. I'm doing sort of her side of the uh, world episode for next week. But in the meantime, this week, we're going to bring you an interview I did in Paris with uh, the author Michael Mushaw, who's written a couple great investigative tennis books a, a few decades ago, uh, Ladies of the Court and also Short Circuit, and talk to him about issues he encountered in tennis that surprised him, and sort of investigative journalism in tennis and the state of that, and all sorts of fun issues there, and I think you'll enjoy it, and here he is, and we will be back to you next week, hopefully with some sort of more regular programming. Bye, guys. Very happy to be joined today by Michael Mooshaw, author of Several esteemed tennis books, which I read over the last year and enjoyed greatly, and wanted to have him on the show. Uh, Short circuit, Ladies to the Court. and were there
1: others tennis books? I wrote, no, I wrote a novel called Blackballed, which okay. was about a, an African player who becomes number one and then goes to jail. But
0: okay, but that's what you've done more lately. It's is novels. Is that correct? Yeah, just, yeah, I guess yeah. sort of for those of you who may not be familiar. Just you have a thirty second life story of your writing career but, or, or so. Well,
1: I mean, I started as a novelist, and only in the uh, early 80s, did I start um, covering tennis? I had been playing tennis, but I wanted to go out on the tour. And um, <clears throat> now I'm a, a recovering tennis writer and I <laughs> uh, only come to Roland Garros and to Wimbledon, and the rest of the time I write novels. Or my most recent book is Sympathy for the Devil, uh, a book of my, about a 40 year friendship that I had with Gore Vidal.
0: Okay. Now you. When you're tennis writing, I think it differs from a lot of other work that people have done, and there's a lot more of an investigative bent to it, I think, in the right. things that I've read, and a lot more uh, trying to look beneath the sur- surface of the sport and get to the parts of the games that might be hidden from view. And the less savory parts is that is that a fair assessment? Do you think, or is that a label that you don't like being well, I, pigeonholed? Uh, with? No, I
1: think I think I have been pigeonholed in that way. But I, I want to emphasize that that's not the way that I started out. I yeah. didn't start out, for example, to write Short Circuit with the intention of writing an expose. It was going to be a kind of lyrical hymn to the sport, a, a Walter Mitty fantasy fulfilled. I yeah. I would just turn forty, and. Uh, but I have a background in investigative journalism, and when I went on the, the tour and began going from tournament to tournament, I realized that there was a story out there that wasn't being told. And you didn't have to be Woodward and Bernstein to, to uncover it. It was right on the surface, as many things in tennis are pretty much on the surface. And if you want to write about them, they're there. But I think most people in, uh, most journalists in professional tennis uh, don't care to, and I understand why they don't care to, because you'd immediately lose access, and you'd uh, you'd be, as I was for a number of years, persona non grata on the tour. It was very hard for me just to get credentials. What, what were some
0: of the first things you noticed that changed you from lyrical <laughs> to to
1: cynical, I guess? Well, I went to a, a tournament in Genoa, Italy in 1982, and uh um sat down with a number of players. Um, probably many of them, their names wouldn't make any difference to anybody in, anymore, but it was Buster Matram and a few others. Buster was then number one in England and, and uh, Ross Case in an Australian and, and uh, you know, we were sitting around one evening and they began talking about the next day's final between Yvonne Lendl and Vitas gerolitis And the discussion turned to whether, uh, they thought that Vita Sherilis and Lendl were going to split the prize money because there was a difference of about $67,000 between the winner and the loser. Yeah. And, and I, I said, What? I said, Is this something pretty common? They said, Yes. And, you know, I, they saw nothing wrong with this whatsoever, but. Uh, um, they named various tournaments in which this had happened and i was able to confirm it and i went to the atp and said what's your position on this and they said it's a private arrangement between players and then i realized that there were many things of this nature going on i mean people were uh, arranging matches actually you know they were being approached by the tournament director who would say we have three hours of tb tv time here We'd like you to fill it all. Yeah. So, so they would agree that the guy who won the first set would dump the second set, and they'd play an honest third set, that sort of thing. And so I got more interested and began asking more questions.
0: And these questions were not always received warmly. No, n-
1: no, they, they weren't received warmly. But uh, uh, that is to, to say by the time I got to the U.S. Open, I was refused credentials there and wasn't... Uh, you know, I wasn't allowed to, to cover the, the, the tournament. Uh, and uh, for the next few years, I stayed away from the game. But um, At least, I, mean, like, I watched it on television yeah. and bought my way into tournaments. There
0: you go. When, when, when Short Circuit came out, what, what was the reaction to it? Well,
1: the immediate reaction, in those days I lived in Italy, mm-hmm. and I was covering the Italian Open for the Washington Post. And I was in the press box, and one of the guys who was an IMG agent and part of the promotional apparatus of the Italian Open named Chino Marchese uh... waved to me and he had been a source in short circuit and um, we had a kind of affable relationship but uh... he waved to me to come out of the press box and as soon as I did he grabbed me and dragged me down these stairs <laughs> he's a huge guy he's about six feet six And um, said, uh, you've got to go right away to Bob Kane, the head of IMG, and recant what you've written and tell him that I didn't say those things, etc., etc., etc. So I was physically removed from the press box, threatened, held under the stadium until I finally said, fine, take me to Bob Kane, uh, who at that time was the head of tennis at IMG. And interestingly, I thought I could go to talk to Bob Kane and say, look, this guy is threatening me and is manhandling me. And, and that's what I did. I told Bob that. And Bob's reaction was, um, that's between you and him. Yeah. And uh, so I, I it was a, an education, an education. Uh, you know, I mentioned that I have a background in investigative reporting. I, I've written a number of books about murder cases. I've dealt a lot with, uh, you know, death row cons and lawyers and prosecutors and detectives. Um, but I have to say... They were a lot more pleasant than the people that I was dealing with on the tennis tour. Uh, you know, I think people in tennis are superficially pleasant as yeah. long as they think you're going to be part of the promotional apparatus right. of the sport. But as soon as you begin asking any awkward questions, uh, that's it. Trying
0: to pierce the bubble. A little yeah, bit. yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I've, I've, I've certainly encountered that in my own life. I bet for you sure. Uh, I guess in in the short circuit in that sort of first real dive into it, there were a lot of things about conflicts of interest was obviously a big one in terms of uh, chair umpires, you know, and getting called on certain matches or trying to recruit players or whatever else, and uh, just, that was, obviously, conflicts of interest are still a huge issue in tennis today. How how much do you think at all, if at all, the landscape of the issue, sort of issues, you can go into more of them if you want, which you dealt with in short circuit, have been improved or eliminated or, or worsened in, in the last
1: 30-plus uh, years since the book came out? I think they've more or less remained the same. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think uh, what's changed is uh, back in the 80s, there used to be the occasional article that accused people of um, conflict of interest. Now nobody even bothers to say that. I mean, um, you know, I what I pointed out then was that... Uh, the game was occupied by a number of what I would call shape changers yeah you know at one moment they 're journalists. the next moment they 're playing in the legends event, the veterans events in the next moment they 're on television commenting on matches in the next moment they 're USTA coaches. Uh, uh, you know you can fill in the names of, of and the positions, but that 's the way it is and so people who tune in on television. Uh, to get the background on a tennis match or on a tennis player. Frequently, they'll get some good technical information, but they don't really get what I would call the deep play, the story behind the story, right. because often you have a guy in the box commentating on a match uh, who is, has, is in business with the guy he's commenting on. He's uh, got a financial relationship with him or a coaching relationship or a deep friendship with him. That still happens. Uh, That still happens. Well, look, uh, the McEnroe brothers, who I think are wonderful commentators, are wrapped all around this sport in a way that in any other endeavor would be called conflict of interest. They would be told, well, you cannot be, uh, you know, you cannot have a financial interest in a tennis academy and then have a position at the USTA and then be an on-camera commentator and because you, you you lacked attachment from the sport you lacked attachment or distance from the game and uh, they are by no means the worst i mean the king the king of conflict was always a conflict of interest was always donald dell yeah donald dell used, who, used to
0: be would have times where he was would own a tournament and be commentating on air for a
1: match who of a player he was an agent Yeah, Sometimes it was two players. Yeah, both players' agents. I mean, the the US Open between Lendl and Connors happened to be his own players. And he was commentating on it. And he's the one who arranged for for Connors to receive medication during the match against the rules of uh, the the then rules of the US Open. Uh, I mean, uh, something that Donald blithely admitted in his most recent book. but this is a sport where it's not the appearance of conflict of interest; it's the absolute conflict of interest. Um, whether whether this interests the common fan or the average fan, uh, I don't know. I I feel that in some ways it should. Um, I mean, if people can get their knickers in a twist about footballs being underinflated by yeah. a pound or two, uh, it would seem to me. They should uh, be interested in knowing some of these other things. Um, now, when you're talking about the women's tour, then there's stuff happening on the women's tour. There's absolutely criminal behavior, and uh, I, I've, I've brought to this the attention of WTA. But I think it's still more or less swept under the table. In in,
0: in Ladies of the Court, which was your yeah. focus, the focus on the women's yeah. tour, that came out. I think it was about the '91 season. Yes, yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah. so it. Um, a lot of the focus of it was improper coach-player relationships at the time, especially at a time when female players were a
1: lot younger on the right, than they exactly, are today. Exactly. Um, now the, the ladies are older and, and have to be stronger and better conditioned. Then you had a lot of uh, girls on the tour who were actually juniors who were out there uh, traveling. Now, they don't play so much anymore, the juniors, in the uh, main tour uh, or the main events. They're still at these tournaments and they're yeah. still traveling with coaches. Uh, Let me make it clear what I'm talking about. I'm talking about not just inappropriate behavior. I'm talking about sexual abuse. I'm talking about violations of statutory rape laws. And um, there have been a number of coaches who have had serious problems with this. Uh, Bob Hewitt being one South African who was just just sent to jail for six years. But there was a guy here in France who had uh, physically and sexually abused uh, Isabel de and he got a 10-year sentence, too. Uh, you had a couple of players, I mean, a couple of coaches from the Friends Tennis Federation who were fired uh, for having relations with junior girls. Uh, the WTA put in a rule that girls under 18 uh, who had sexual relations with their coaches, even consensual ones, the coach could no longer coach on the tour. But it's... Uh, If it's enforced at all, it's very casually enforced. And the WTA said, well, how can we know about personal relationships? Well, I'll tell you how. They're checking into the hotels with their coaches. That's one way of knowing. I mean, if you have a coach who's 40 checking in with an 18-year-old girl, that's ipso facto inappropriate.
0: Pretty much. Now, when you were... Looking for the second book in the women's tour, I guess. What mm-hmm. were the, besides that? If there were any other factors in the women's game that were different at that point besides the coach-player relationships in terms of the sort of
1: cracks in the foundation of the women's game. Well, the, when I was covering the men's tour, guarantees were illegal, and yeah. yet they were uh, universally uh, that role was violated. parents' them, fees, yeah. Yeah, yeah, parents' fees. Uh, but in the '90s, when I started on the women's but, tour, they were still illegal. And yet, um, I found uh, documentary evidence that the top players were getting enormous guarantees three, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars. Frequently, there was more money in, paid in uh, appearance fees than there was prize money available to the whole field. and uh, that still
0: happens at some small tournaments. It does. Yeah. It does it. Now, I don't. Are they legal in women's tennis? They field? are, but they're still not as disclosed as they should be. Yeah. The Basically, they, they passed the rule within the last five years right. I think about saying they're now no longer strictly illegal but right. you just don't hear about them very right. much at all you
1: and permanent directors will never tell you will right never tell you right and and supposedly when the men legalize guarantees this was going to bring it into the discussion of the tournament but it's very difficult to get that information to uh, let me just say uh, the obvious and that is if you're a tournament director and you're paying someone $500,000 to come to your tournament, the last thing you want to have happen is for that person to lose in the first round. Right. And uh, th- there are indications that these players are protected in one way or the other. At the very least, um, you know the, the tournament director and the other people involved in the, the tournament have a vested interest in making sure that this guy goes further. I have been told, as a matter of fact, Gene Scott, now dead, but who was the, the tournament director at Maui for a couple of years and then in, in Moscow, he, he told me about a, a top ranked player whose coach, I mean, whose partner, agent negotiated with him a guarantee of $200,000 and then informed Gene that he was going to tank in the first round. Mm. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is both tanking and the guarantees are part of the system now. Yeah. I mean all of these agents know the tournament directors, the tournament directors realize what's happening. I think it makes for what I would call a kind of casual corruption which allows or at least allows for the possibility of a more serious corruption taking place. If somebody's willing to tank a match and leave town just because he has something better to do elsewhere. One of the ones you mentioned a bunch of times in Short Circuit was somebody tanking a doubles match just so he could
0: go play singles wherever the next tournament was the next week. Right, right, right.
1: But it seems to me it's an easy step from that, from saying I'm going to tank my doubles to betting on your doubles match now that you have all these bet and win situations or telling somebody who has a a betting syndicate uh, that you were going to tank and they flood the market with money.
0: What do you see in terms of, I think, a lot of things that I remember reading in short circuit came up for me again this or last week at the French Open when the story about Rafael Nadal and Carlos Bernardes came up, the chair empire having requests and Nadal saying he had a preference for not having this right. particular chair empire. Um, I guess, can you sort of look at that? Cause that's the one very recent incident that sort of right. reminded me very directly <laughs> of things that I read in short circuit. Sure. And what? Issues that existed then that I guess still exist now.
1: It was uh, not uncommon back in the 80s for, for uh, umpires, especially umpires who were strict, to be uh, declared persona non grata and for top ranked players saying, I don't want that guy in the chair. Um, Now, flash forward umpteen years, 35 years, and you have a top player doing it again. Now, I mean, Rafa was open about this in his press conference the other day, and I think most of the press thought, well, that makes a certain amount of sense if he's not getting along with the guy, and even the tournament director here said that. But think about this for a minute. It goes right to the heart of the game, right to the integrity of the game. In what other sport could a star say, I don't want that umpire behind the plate? or I don't want that guy uh, refereeing my NBA game. I mean uh I, there's complete independence as far as I can understand uh, of the, offici- the officials in other sports. There's not in tennis. I think they're under a lot of a lot yeah. of pressure and you
0: see them with and you talk in the uh, and short circuit about there being like a, a, you know apparel deals for officials them having other sort of other I don't know what, uh, what the term is other fingers in the pie in various ways and right. different ways and I see I think uh, there's one chair fire, Enrique Molina who recently left being a chair empire to be a, an agent for players and so right. that, if he knew he was going to do that it would incentivize him to be a much less strict official along the way in theory.
1: Right, it's like government officials or elected officials who we accuse of double dipping, you know, somebody who who is in the Senate one day and the next day he's a lobbyist um, uh, or somebody who comes out of an elected official and, and uh, who goes back and forth uh, all those people who are White House advisors one day and get then um, lobbyists the next or people who are um, uh, have special interests I think there are lots of umpires who have uh, another uh, string to their bow they have other interests in tennis yeah. and frequently they're in co- they're, they're in conflict back in the 80s you had you had umpires who were actually Clothing dealers who would have players on court with whom they had a f- financial relationship. The guy was wearing the clothing that they sponsored. Or you would have racket dealers, or or you would have umpires who were associated with certain tournaments and they would recruit players to play in their tournament. I mean, this is just uh, you know a kind of absurdity. Uh, I mean, it's too it's too obvious a conflict of interest and a, a potential source of corruption to. to be.
0: What, what do you think it is about tennis that made itself so vulnerable to this corruption when well, and now, or do, or do you think that it's just the way it started? It never really outgrew those cracks in the foundation that were there all along? Well,
1: well you're virtually uh, quoting or at least closely yeah. paraphrasing what Bud Collins said. He said the game was born in dishonesty and never outgrew it. That's a pretty cynical statement coming from a guy like Bud. Yeah, especially pretty,
0: who's known as being it, such a champion a, a exa- cheerleader for tennis. Exactly,
1: yeah. but if you look at it historically, you'll see that tennis has always been prone to certain problems and i remember talking to gardner malloy i mean who's now in his 90s who said that as soon as he began having good results and this was back in the amateur days uh, the usta began paying him appearance money to go to certain tournaments and he said so the usta was violating the very rule that it had instituted I, I, I look at it, try to look at it less cynically a, as a game that was amateur until 1968. And it was sort of, the whole tennis world was sort of a, a, analogous to a kid who opens a lemonade stand in his yard and serves uh glasses of lemonade for a quarter of glass i mean he doesn't file an income tax return he doesn't abide by health regulations he's just a kid he's just doing this to make a little spare change well if that lemonade stand grows into something like uh you know an international beverage company at some point along the way you've got to start living up to tax laws uh, uh, federal laws about cleanliness or hygiene or, or uh, r- reporting and this sort of thing. And, but tennis never did it. It always dealt with money and with payments under the table. It always had a lot of laundered money or black money floating around it was always operated out of somebody's hip pocket and that's what it's still trying to do it's still trying to invent the thing as it goes along and it used to say it's because we're so young but now it's it's getting a little long in the tooth to still be operating as if it's somebody's backyard um, lemonade stand do you think there's some way to fix it
0: or is it or is it or is I, that too
1: big, a, too big I, I think a I, you know pe- I remember Bruce Manson, who was a journeyman player back in the 80s, and I, a bright guy, and I asked him, do you think there's any way of fixing it? And he said, we've well, got to understand there's no impetus to fix it. There's no motivation to fix it because yeah. tennis is organized, as disorganized as it seems, it's organized in the way... That the top agents and the top players want it to be organized, which is to say, loosey goosey with a lot of leeway and very lax enforcement of the rules. And this goes from, you know, on, to- on court time violations sure. to taking money under the table okay. or to not paying taxes. It, you know, uh, in other sports, somebody who commits a felony is usually out of the sport if it's yeah. a professional one. This is a sport where you have any number of players who were inducted into the Hall of Fame after having fel- fel- felony convictions for tax evasion and tax avoidance. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I think that uh, what's gonna change it, the only thing that could conceivably change it is what just happened to FIFA, where the FBI stepped in and filed a RICO Act um, uh, suit against uh, 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 filed charges against certain officials and demanded their extradition. That could be done in a, a second in the United States and at one point they, the Men's International Tennis Council actually considered filing RICO Act charges against various actors in tennis but the, the suit was dropped. But there are lots of similarities between what's happening in FIFA and what could happen in tennis if anybody ever was sufficiently interested.
0: Now, talking about being interested, I guess you you we've talked yesterday off air about you know this various stories you'd worked on right. and things like that that hadn't gotten traction. I don't know if you want to talk about those now, but what what do you what do you make of sort of of tennis journalism as it's has it been complicit? Do you think in any way in in the way that people have been allowed have skated more or less over the past yeah. few decades and gotten away with
1: you know, um, various
0: the- things that have gone. Unlooked at.
1: Well, saying they're complicit, which I have said in the past, but <laughs> but it but it, it suggests that journalists are sort of in cahoots with uh, with the tournament and somehow on the dole or something. But I, I think it's more a natural reflex of tennis journalists. I mean, first of all, it's hard to dig. It's easy just to come in and report the score and talk about backhands and forehands. Yeah. It takes some energy. And you don't get extra pay just because you do a story about something that's really awkward or something that's illegal. Um, So uh, a lot of journalists don't have any incentive to do that. In fact, there are lots of disincentives to do it, such as losing access or losing accreditation to tournaments. Uh, Having said that, I still think a lot more should be done and that the kinds of reporting... Standards that exist at newspapers and magazines when you're talking about politics or the arts or movies or municipal libraries or whatever, they're somehow not enforced uh, in tennis. I mean, you have people in tennis doing things which, when their newspapers suddenly hear about it, they pretend to be surprised and, you know, crack down. But, uh, look... I got my at Cross Purposes with Neil Amder of the New York Times because when Short Circuit came out, I was pressed by Howard Cosell to talk about the New York Times coverage of tennis. And I said I thought Neil Amder was a splendid writer about tennis, but that he had a a terrible conflict of interest because he was doing as told to books Mm. with players. He was receiving huge advances to write Chris Everett's ghosted memoirs or some other players which you know,
0: fyi i know the new york times now has policies against yes you're for right know
1: right that. right yeah. right but when the new york apparently they had a policy against it then okay. as well and so when this happened and amder was confronted with this uh he was put on hiatus from from the new york times they brought him back later but um uh you know i mean it, it, it they can't be complete. In complete ignorance that, that no, journalists are doing I mean, There's
0: the conflicts of interest in journalism are still there. People write, you know, things for tournament, even like low-level tournament program right. stuff right. or other things that for tours or for federations and you know, some people accept trips, various places right. And, right. and stuff that, to go cover tournaments, which is in interest of both the journalists and the tournament. If they're right. getting flown to a far-flung tournament in Dubai or whatever, right. um, yeah, no, that still happens for sure, and it's still. Well, well, that,
1: well, that's interesting because you know I'm not close enough to the game anymore to know about that. But, but of course, yes, that used to happen uh, in the old days too. In the '80s and '90s, you had journalists who, in effect, were, were receiving appearance money. Yeah, that's true. They, they were important to the tournament. To sort of show the flag that certain reporters were coming there, and so they would they would fly them in and they would put them up they 'd get free hotels they 'd yep. get free flights yep. they 'd get free dinners um, be honest, if you were in that position, how much incentive to, uh, incentive would you have to write critical articles about that tournament, or if you went to that tournament and discovered something really drastically. Uh, drastic was going wrong. Would you report it? You know, a lot of people. A lot wouldn't. of people would. Yeah. A lot of people wouldn't. A lot of people don't. And uh, um, you know, I, it's a it's a an awkward awkward situation that I think um, is in contrast. I, I alluded before to the Patriots and the problem with Deflate you know, def- Gate. Deflate Gate. Yeah. I mean, look at how that story t- took off, and look at how many journalists. Just r- rampantly pursued it. Yeah. And why doesn't that happen in tennis?
0: Well, I think uh, I think just add, I don't know if you, that was a rhetorical question, but I think part of it is in NFL you just don't get the access you get in tennis. Yeah. So you don't have you're not there's nothing to lose on some levels of journalists. Right. So it's not like anyone was getting frequent one on ones with Tom Brady. They suddenly you're, weren't right, after right, def- right, getting to w- Deflategate. Whereas right. in tennis, it's much easier to have you have a lot that you can get shut out of. And exactly. Then with the relatively low. Level of interest in the U.S. and in the world in hmm. tennis compared to the NFL. I mean, tennis reporting has to be, I think, a lot better mm-hmm. in order to make any sort of dent than NFL writing does. Right, right,
1: right, so, right, right. Well, that 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 yeah. you've 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 explained the situation, <laughs> yeah. but but I mean, I think essentially professional tennis is a nomadic tribe. Oh yeah, and. The, the press is part of that nomadic yep. tribe and it, like a lot of nomadic tribes it has its own language and its own morals and mores and as long as those aren't violated Everything's okay, but the the sort of laws and mores of the rest of society don't really penetrate this nomadic tribe. Yeah. And uh, uh, the worst offense you can commit in tennis, and I, that happened a couple of years ago at the Olympics, is the ball comes across the net and it hits you, and you don't admit it. Oh right, <laughs> with, with, with uh, yeah, and Blake. Right, yeah, right, right, or, yeah. or you touch the net and don't call it on yourself. This is considered the ultimate sleaze, yeah. the worst act in the world. On the other hand, if you tank a match. If you bet on a match, or you take money under the table, or you blackball an umpire, that's considered uh, just uh,
0: the way of the world. Yeah. One one thing I we haven't mentioned that I know you wrote about in the uh, afterword or the addendum, I guess, I yeah. what What it it's called to short circuit was about yeah. performance enhancing drugs in right. Right. tennis. And I guess, how do you see how the enforcement of that? Is, if you can give sort of a historical overview and what what you think of the current, from what you know of the current. Climate of
1: that issue. What, I know you read about that in uh, terms right. of. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've written about it in various uh, at various times and and with various sources, including USTA doctors, one of whom is, uh, said to me that you you, you would have given the kinds of testing there are now, you'd have to be a complete fool to get caught. Um, um, the tests are so obviously coming at certain times, um, and there's so little out of out of Out of competition testing, that you'd uh, there are months and months that go by, and also, uh, given that many of the players historically who have been guilty of taking performance-enhancing drugs are South Americans. There, yeah. well, I remember one year when there were absolutely no tests at any South American tournament. Well, you you know, you'd think, well, that's the first place you would... You yeah, would, back yeah, when there uh, was a string in the, yeah, in the
0: yeah, late 90s, I yeah, guess, and early 2000s of Argentine players yeah, Exactly, caught,
1: exactly. But, yeah. I mean, I think that, that episode that happened, you know, about 10 years ago where there were any number of players who tested positive and it looked like 10 or 11 players who had used some uh, strain of Nandrolone and then and they blamed it on supplements given away by the ATP and it all went away. I mean, I talked to the people at the World Drug Enforcement Agency and they just said that was the most bizarre thing they'd ever heard. The idea that tennis would declare itself guilty but the players innocent, innocent yeah. was just extraordinary. Do I think there's per- there are performance-enhancing drugs being used? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, uh, and why wouldn't there be? Why would this be the one sport... Where players wouldn't try to enhance their, their performance. I mean, it would seem to all the me, incentives I'm, are there. It, all the, the incentives.
0: incentives are there too. If you get caught, obviously you're yeah. ruined. Well, but. Uh,
1: you, well, you say you're ruined, but um, you know, more and more we realize now, as Agassi told us in his in his yeah. autobiography, he 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 was caught using crystal meth, I guess it was, yeah. and uh, he gave some bogus excuse and got off. Well, it was no more bogus, though, than the excuse that uh, um, uh, Gasquet gave a couple of years ago when he was caught using um, co- cocaine yeah. and he said he, he got it from kissing a girl. I mean, this is, as an excuse, that's right up there with the dog ate my homework. I mean, this is absurd. But uh, speaking of cocaine, you, know, you have people very highly placed in the game who acknowledge that there's a rule against cocaine use, but say it's absurd because it's not performance enhancing, and yet if you talk to any doctor, any sports doctor, they say cocaine is a performance enhancing drug. It is a performance enhancing drug. Now, and yet, you have a whole generation of players and titles, Grand Slam titles, that were won by players who were cocaine users. Either they've admitted it now after the fact in their autobiographies, yeah. but you have 29 Grand Slam titles that were won by uh, Borg, McEnroe, Jerolitis, and V. all of whom were either caught using drugs or admitted using um, cocaine. Um, nobody, 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 Nobody finds that uh, extraordinary. Nobody finds that, in any way, worth noticing. It, uh, worth an asterisk in the book. A couple of years ago at Wimbledon, um, I'm trying to think who was the Olympic 100 yard dash guy. In in not not you saying Bolt, but the British guy who won the. um, uh, um, This was back in the 90s. He won. He he was. Terrific sprinter, won the 100-yard dash, uh, and later on, after he had retired, he uh, became a BBC commentator. Okay. But it was revealed then that he had been using performance-enhancing drugs back during his career. The first thing that the, that the um, BBC, did, uh, BBC did was to fire him and say they didn't want somebody commentating on sport who was an admitted user. When McEnroe admitted that he had used cocaine, when Pat Cash admitted he was used, they, they had used cocaine. I went to the people at Wimbledon. went to the BBC officials at Wimbledon no. and asked them if they were going to fire these people. Their response was, "Get out of the here, or we're going to call security." That was their response to that question.
0: I hear what you're saying. I do <laughs> think that cocaine has a more spectrum of uses than your average performance-enhancing drug. No, and I don't, I don't think that it's probably unfair to say that McEnroe or whoever was doing it purely for performance-enhancing. I don't think I don't
1: think any of them were doing it specifically for performance enhancing. Um, just like many of them would have said in those days, and probably now too, that they're not using amphetamines to uh, to enhance their performance, but rather using them just to wake up after a 30 hours, um, you know, flight around the world. Yeah. You know, um, but anyway, uh, anyone who believes that it's not happening, though. Um, Deserves to buy an Edsel.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you very much, yeah. Michael, for your time here. Appreciate it. I want you me. go out
1: and buy your
0: books. Short Circuit, Ladies of the Court. Any other, any other plugs? Do you want to give? Do you want to give for the for the new book too? Do you want to I, don't th- I don't think support? anybody intends
1: is going to go buy Sympathy for the Devil, my book about Gore Vidal. But have on if you will. Short Circuit is now out in, as an e-book, it's book, that's so right. it's back yeah. in back in print. Thank you very much. Thanks so, for man. thanks for okay. being here. Appreciate okay. it. Okay.